Father, thank you that we're here tonight. Thank you that I'm back safe. Thank you, Father, for the uh, dedication of men and women who want to study here, allowing us to teach, allowing me to teach, and for others to hear this through other means, and uh, that the gospel has continued to be preached here and elsewhere. Father, we are uh, in training too. We may not call ourselves pastors or have our own congregations, but that means no, nothing to you, Father, for we're all ministers. We're all called to serve you. And in, in that sense, Father, we all need training. So let, uh, let this be a time of training and show us, Father, how to make use of what we learn. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're in the middle of Philip's experience in Samaria where he is bringing the gospel. He's performing signs. We've seen already he's performing wonders. Many are believing, and he's also confounding a man named Simon, who encounters him when he comes, when Philip comes into Samaria. We learned last week that before Philip arrived, Simon was here doing magic and had long been impressing crowds with signs, wonders, things that in some sense were similar to the things that Philip is now doing. But we also understand that what Simon did was done by the power of the enemy, demonically powered compared to, of course, Philip's power to do it in the spirit. And Simon, last week we learned, became a kind of follower of sorts for Philip. He's been impressed by the message at least enough that he has agreed to it. He stated a belief in it. He submitted to baptism. And he's transfixed by the power that Philip has to continue performing these miracles. And I began to suggest, and I think the text itself suggested a little last week, that he has a bit of professional jealousy over Philip's success. His interest, in other words, in what Philip is doing is deeper than meets the eye. He is interested in what he's doing, how he's doing it, and therefore it's a kind of professional curiosity and really an inappropriate kind of interest. So Simon is joined in, and meanwhile, the news of all of this activity in Samaria has reached to Jerusalem where the apostles Peter and John are surprised probably to hear that there's been any reception of the gospel among Samaritans and probably also surprised that Philip is at the heart of it. And so they're going to leave Jerusalem. They're going to come down and try to understand down here, meaning north. They're going to come down to see if what they've heard is true. So verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Let's look at what's happening here. The apostles travel. They go up on the compass direction. It's up to Samaria. And they go to validate the report they've heard of what's happening. And like I said last week, I said this briefly, so I want to just repeat it just in in passing. Peter has the keys to the kingdom as it was delivered to him by Jesus back in Matthew. I'll read those verses since we didn't cover them last week. But Matthew 16, 17 and to 19, Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now we know where that's coming from, right? If we've studied the Gospels, that's a familiar scene. Peter has just a moment earlier Uh, been asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? And then Peter responded with his famous confession that you are the Christ. In response to his confession, Jesus said, Simon Verona will be blessed, not because somebody in flesh and blood made clear to him that Jesus was Messiah, but rather that the Spirit in heaven made that 
case to Peter's heart, which is how we all come to know that truth. And then moving forward into 18 is where he talks about Peter being the rock. He says, in 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, his name now, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, much has been made over what is the rock here in this reference. Uh, As you probably know, Catholics would argue it's simply Peter's authority and that it's been handed down now since Peter through the popes. Uh, It doesn't take very long in study of of history to recognize, to come to conclusions that that can't be true. There wasn't an unbroken line between Peter and the men who today call themselves popes. So even if that's what it meant, it's been invalidated by history. But it's not what it meant. Uh, The second view that's common is that the rock is the confession of what Peter said itself. The confession is the rock. That's true, but it's not complete. In other words, yes, his confession becomes the model for how anyone would enter into the church. And on that confession, the church is built. Yes, absolutely. But Peter is not insignificant here. Jesus didn't say these words to any other apostle. To separate Peter from the moment reduces Peter in a way that's inappropriate, given the context of the Scripture. Peter is a key here. Peter is the one who first declared the gospel among the the apostles. And for that reason, he is given preeminence among them. And here Jesus says, you are Peter, the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Upon this model would be another way to say it. Upon modeling what you did, I will be building a church. By the confession, but also by your delivery of it. Peter delivering it first in his own walk, I believe, and then Peter being the keys to this kingdom such that he would deliver it in the sense that he will become a mechanism for God to open the gospel to one group followed by another group followed by another group. Peter becomes a rock or the opening of the foundation, rather, for the church among these three groups. Now, this does not imply that something continues after Peter, and that's where I think the Catholics, for example, go way beyond what Scripture is providing here. We're not suggesting that this authority must now be transferred after Peter. There's no suggestion of that. It's simply Peter. And having done what he's called to do, it's done. Verse 19, which follows, is, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That statement goes no further in Scripture. There's never a transfer of it. There's never a statement that those keys are, are transferable, so to speak. And in, the, in light of how the book of Acts portrays those keys being used, it's obvious that it's, a, it's an opening without any subsequent closing or without any need for further opening. That once I've opened for the Jews, as we said last week, and then secondly, the Samaritans, and then lastly, Gentiles generally, there's no one left. The key has been opened for all. And there's no intent or suggestion that they'll ever be closed until the church age itself is concluded. So once opened, there's no need for the power or the keys to be transferred. There's nothing more to do with them. You'll notice, and we'll see this in the book of Acts, that as each of these three groups begins their opportunity with the gospel, Peter himself is always present. I think that's the point, is is not to make Peter the man, the key. It's his faith and his role as the apostle. But it's also important not to minimize that Peter himself is integral to this plan. So with each new group that received the gospel, Peter was always the one God is involved anyway to usher them into the family of God. And he in turn has done it with the Jews at the Pentecost, moment of Pentecost. He is doing it here, as you'll see, with the Samaritans. He eventually will be involved later with the Gentiles. The opening of one of these doors by Peter is always marked by the arrival of the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
in some kind of visible, obvious way. We've said this already, but I want to remind everyone of that. Once the manifestation of the Spirit has occurred with a given group, it quickly subsides within that group. And in its place will come the normal experience of new faith accompanied by an invisible dwelling of the Holy Spirit, the experience we have had generally in our own walk. But had we been believers in that initial day for our group, for the group of Gentiles, we may very well have experienced this more demonstrative style of of manifestation. But now that has been done away with. It's also worth noting that the three parts of a salvation experience or the components to a salvation experience that are common to all believers are shown here happening in a different order in each of the first two groups we've seen, the Jews and now the Samaritans. For example, in the case of the Jewish disciples who began the church in Jerusalem, first they experienced faith, even as Jesus still walked the earth or after his resurrection. Then at Pentecost, they experienced the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Then lastly, after Pentecost, they participate in water baptism. So faith, spirit baptism, disconnected in time, and then water baptism. Now in chapter 8, the Samaritans entered the church as they came in for the very first time. The order is belief followed by water baptism and then spirit baptism accomplished through a laying on of hands in their case, which did not occur during the Jewish experience. There was no laying on of hands. And in the Jewish experience, there was a speaking in tongues expression when the manifestation of the Holy Spirit arrived. And here there has been none. What do you conclude? There's no such thing as a standard in these examples, either in chapter two or here again in chapter eight. He's not trying to establish a standard. He's not trying to give a recipe. But now you see how easily it is it has been that churches have gone to one or the other chapter and tried to create a recipe and then mimic it. And just by the fact that they stand opposed to one another is enough to conclude there's no recipe intended here. The elements are important. The order is self-evidently not important, or another way to say it is it serves different purposes in different times. But at the end of the day, it's faith and spirit baptism and water baptism. Right, and we know he came upon men in the Old Testament for a time and then would be departing them at other times. So, uh, uh, yeah, it... It is important to remember, and that's a great point, that we we cannot arrive at the point of faith absent the work of the Holy Spirit. Let's go into chapter 8, verse 18 through 25, and let's get back to the story of Simon. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of God, they started back to Jerusalem and we're preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So Simon has a very interesting and unique reaction. And his reaction is to say, I have finally found the source of Philip's power. He's seeing Philip's upline. He's finding out that the, the pyramid starts higher than Philip. There's these guys that come in with their own hands and do these magical things. Philip must have got his power from them. 
So I'm just going to go straight to them and buy whatever they're selling because somehow they gave it to Philip. And it's interesting, he doesn't ask them for the power that Philip had. What, did power, what power did Philip have? have? Philip had the power for miracles and signs and casting out demons and the like. These gentlemen have the power to bring the Holy Spirit. That's not something Philip did. That's why these gentlemen had to come down. So he now goes directly to their source. He says, I want what you have. Let's just cut out Philip. Give me the ability to give the Holy Spirit. It's fair to conclude, I think, based on his request, that Simon himself has not received the laying on of hands and the Spirit. If anything, he may have made this request at the moment when they came to him, presumably because they're moving their way through the crowd, laying on hands for anyone who's believed. When it's Simon's turn, Simon says, hey, you know what? I just want what you have. Can you sell that to me? Is Simon merely an immature believer caught up in his old ways? Or is he an unbeliever posing as a Christian and now he's showing his true nature when he makes this request to Peter? And as you might imagine, many commentators have lined up on either side of this, of this question of whether he is or is not a true believer. Rather than trying to guess, though, here's my recommendation. Why don't we ask an eyewitness? Why don't we ask someone who was there, saw it all happen, and was able to render his own opinion as to what he believes about the man Simon? And of course, I'm talking about Peter. I don't have to guess. I look at Peter's own testimony. So looking at Peter's response in verse 20, for example, we'll start with with all the things Peter says. He says, may your silver perish with you. It's a much more colorful phrase in the Greek. Peter actually says, you and your silver go to hell, to Hades. Strong words, but I think Peter's being literal. I don't think he's using them in a, a slang manner. He is, I believe, declaring this man is on the road to hell and not heaven. Verse 21, he says, Simon's heart is not right before the Lord, and therefore he has no part or portion in this matter. To have a heart that is not right before the Lord is a strong statement in a context of salvation discussion, of of believing, of baptism, of receiving the Spirit. To say your heart's not right seems to be an indictment of your confession. Then he says you have no part or portion. The words part and portion... In Greek, they have a sense of time in the way those words are typically used in Greek. The word for part means present. You have no present connection to this. Portion refers to an inheritance or a future. You have no part in this or in our future, in this matter. And the word matter in Greek literally is the word logos, which is the word. And we know that there was no commonly used word to describe the Christian faith at this early stage, except sometimes the way, but even that came later. At this very early point in the history of the church, they didn't have a name for themselves except Jews or Samaritans and Christ who was the Word. So you have no present or future in relationship to the Word. That's his statement in most literal Greek. And then he goes and says... He should repent of his wickedness and pray for forgiveness. If possible, the Lord would forgive him. Now, the question of what he means by if possible, uh, it's just a turn of phrase. He's not saying it's not possible for the Lord to forgive someone. He's saying if it's God's pleasure, if it's God's decision or choice, which merely reflects God's sovereignty in all of this. Right. So he's simply saying repent 
And in my own words, hopefully God plans to, to forgive you of, of your sin. The implication being, because right now it's self-evident, he hasn't. Or you haven't changed, you're still the old man. And then he says, pray, and in response, of course, Simon says, you pray for me. Lastly, Peter says, I see that you are still in the bondage of iniquity. Probably the most damning of everything he says, because it's so specific. The word in Greek for iniquity is literally unrighteousness, and bondage there becomes the key word. There is a clear teaching of Scripture that we live in a state of bondage prior to salvation that is to sin. And we agree to or we become a part of a bondage willfully and joyfully after salvation that is to Christ. But bondage is an important way to consider those relationships because it implies our helplessness or our, our, un, our inability to change the circumstance. So before Christ, we are in bondage, we are slave to sin because we can't in our own power change that. And when the tables are turned after faith, we're just as bound to Christ without the ability to step out of that relationship. And here, of those two choices, here Peter declares this man is in the former. Similar to what Paul says in Romans 7.14 when he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. So when you put all of this together, I find it hard to explain Simon's heart as that of a disobedient believer when Peter himself makes these statements about the man's heart. In a, said another way, if I have to explain him as a believer, I have a much harder time rationalizing Peter's statements. The only problem I have in saying Simon is an unbeliever is verse 13, the earlier verse where he is said to believe. It only requires, however, that I understand verse 13 from the perspective of those who watched it happen and not necessarily interpret that statement as a testimony of what was in the man's heart. Follow the difference? If it was a statement made as a narration of what people saw happening, then they saw him believe, they saw him get baptized. And it doesn't then have anything to say about what was going on in the heart, which is a common experience, in the, in, unfortunately, in the church. People all the time say things or act in certain ways that would communicate belief. And if you were to explain that or describe that event to someone else, you would say, so-and-so believed. And maybe years later, tragically, you find out through some circumstance that that wasn't true faith. The nature of, of our own experience in the church would affirm this possibility. He was not truly believing. And then I mentioned earlier Simon's response to the request that he pray. And his response, here I think, is very telling. He says, you pray for me, which I have, I have come to call the unbeliever brush off. Unbelievers will brush you off in the moment of a decision or in the case of an exhortation to do something, believe something, act in some way consistent with the gospel. They may have nodded their head all through a discussion and seemed to be in agreement, but then you put it to a test of some kind. Pray with me, and would you confess Christ to me, or something to that extent. Even maybe just come to church or a Bible study with me. And then you see something switch, and they become very disinterested, and they brush off. And usually, if they're nice people, they'll do it in a polite way. This is maybe that kind of moment for, for uh, Simon. The unbelieving brush off. Simon then, what was he doing in all of this? What, what do we conclude about his motives? Simon saw Philip as a competitor to his own business. He was willing to play along on the presumption that it could get him what he wanted. And he attached himself to the movement for cynical, selfish, hypocritical purposes. Until such time as it became apparent he couldn't get what he wanted and then he fell away. 
And he becomes, I think, in that a type or an example in Scripture of the false confessor. There aren't many. Paul alludes to some people who did much damage to the faith, who betrayed him at times. So we know it goes on in the early church in more places than just here. But in terms of detail, this is the only story we have in the New Testament at this length that really shows you the, the way somebody like this works from the beginning to the end. And even if you remove it from the context of an unbeliever and you put it into the context of a believer, perhaps, there's still an important lesson here that even Christians can reduce Christianity to a means to an end rather than to an end in itself. They choose their churches based on business connections and who they can network with. They view participation in the church as a means to a husband or wife or to uh, financial success in some sense. And those aren't bad things to want. The point is, if your desire for those things takes over and your experience in the church is all about that and not Christ and serving Him in some greater sense, then you've turned everything on its head. And though you're not Simon, because you're a believer and he's not, you're mimicking his mistake in some level. And when we preach a carnal gospel, in any context, a gospel that appeals to the flesh, it's no gospel at all, of course, when we do that, and we will only succeed in attracting more Simons. People who attach for that selfish, cynical reason and are never truly saved, perhaps, and the church will grow, but it will grow in a false way. What kind of response might we have expected from Simon if he had truly believed? We have a later experience in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, that gives us a bit of a clue on how this might have gone if it had been true faith. Because there's another group of magicians in Acts 19 who undergo a similar moment, but they have a different response. Acts 19, verses 18 through 20, Luke says, Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Where Simon's interest was in not only continuing his art, but enriching himself even further through it and willing to spend money on it. The exact opposite happens here. They're willing to dispense with their source of income and with the materials of their trade to the point of a loss here of, of quite a bit of money. I mean, that's an incredible amount of money in that day. It's just a complete flip. Now, I am not suggesting that every new believer will immediately take dramatic steps to reform their life. That's not common even, because many do not do that. Still, it's, I think, biblical to demand some progress in discipleship in response to faith. And that's the difference here. I think we make a lot out of, can I expect some visible fruit as proof of faith? Well, don't think of it in that passive sense. Think of it as a more active thing. You demanding that there be proof. You discipling people to produce the proof. You encouraging them to reflect their faith. Don't sit back passively and wait as if it were a test and you wonder how, how it's all going to turn out. Engage with them and then drive them to that. You'll know very quickly whether they're on the track with you or not. Whether there's an inclination to move forward or not. And there you're not thinking so much of a test or a proof. You're thinking more about the, the basic call of the gospel to go out and create disciples and you're actively participating in that. And if along the way it becomes a means to discovering that someone's heart is not true, all the better, preach the gospel again. You just get the chance to do it one more time. But whatever we do, we don't ignore people in the church because that's how Simon's lived next to us for years and years and years. Having established the church then, in Samaria, which I keep reiterating, is north of Jerusalem. 
The Lord now uses Philip to spread the gospel to the southern parts of Palestine. But we're also going to notice the message is still being directed here outside the Jewish group that was receiving the gospel earlier and is going to a secondary level now to those who are closely associated with Jews but are yet not Jews and in some sense not pure Gentiles. It's this in-between group that we're focused on. Look at 8.26, verses 28. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So Philip leaves Samaria on the behest, on the instructions of the angel of the Lord, who would be then Christ. The angel of the Lord is a reference to Jesus. So the angel of the Lord, or Christ, guiding, directing, growing his church, directs Philip where to go next. He tells him to go to this road. This is a road that connects uh, Jerusalem to a town called Gaza, which sits directly on the Mediterranean. They are It's a diagonal road, so to speak, goes from the north goes southwest, basically, from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, that uh, place is about 50 miles south of where Philip is now in the north in Samaria. So the Lord is directing Philip to a desert road in the middle of nowhere, literally, because he's not directing him to the city of Gaza. He's directing him to a road that connects this city to Jerusalem. And this road passes through the Negev Desert. So there is nothing there, by and large. And he has to go 50 miles south to get there with no prospect, by the way, of finding anybody there. No, no, this is not like he's being sent to the next logical metropolitan evangelistic opportunity. Philip is going somewhere that he would never have imagined going on his own. And I would argue while he's on his way, probably wondering what he's going to find when he gets there. Why is he even bothering? The road connected Jerusalem to another road on that went north to south through Gaza, bordering the water of the Mediterranean. We call it the Via Mar, the road by the sea. And it was the main north-south thoroughfare to connect the southern known world in that day to the northern. Uh, everybody took the Via Mar if they were going between Egypt or anywhere south of there and north into uh, present-day uh, Beirut up into Syria, up past that into Asia Minor. So there's going to be a lot of traffic on that road. And anyone who would come into Jerusalem from the south would have to get up to the point of Gaza and then head off on this desert road. Why do we assume or what can we assume Philip was thinking as he took this trip, as he started walk, taking this trip up to Jerusalem? He, remember, he's going literally nowhere. Uh, presumably to somewhere where there is no one. And when we think about the fact that he did this, and it appears that he did it willingly, it shows the direction of the apostles under the guidance of the Spirit of the Lord and, and the Lord himself working through his Spirit. It, it becomes apparent that the early church was not built on any man-made plan of expansion or growth or direction. Even the very fact that they left Jerusalem in the first place was entirely God-directed out of persecution. Now it's being orchestrated by the least of the apostles, really, because they're not apostles. They're just the deacons of the early church. And they're being in a sense, randomly thrown into different places within Judea, within Palestine at this point. Clearly, as Luke is portraying this, God is in control of his church, driving where it will go, how it will develop, who will receive it. 
the application I make is, why would I assume he's ever changed that? So, the opportunity to grow God's church is not about planning per se, but about listening and responding. And then going even when the response seems nonsensical. Even when you expect no one to be there. So in this case, God knew there'd be an encounter on this road. At a point along the road, a chariot comes up. From the text, it would appear to me that the chariot comes up from behind Philip because the chariot's going to move faster than a, hand, than a man walking. And if the chariot were already ahead of him, it's unlikely he would have seen it. It's more likely it's passed by. It also makes sense from the point of view of my own experience and the way God often does things when he entices us or directs us to, do, to get involved in, in something that's happening. He'll bring it into our attention. And then we may be thinking about it for a few moments until the Lord speaks and says, yeah, I want you to get involved. I want you to talk to that person. I want you to ask the question. Uh, the beggar on the street that you're you know, parked next to waiting for the light. Yes, I want you to roll down your window and, and have a conversation. So it would appear that maybe the chariot came up and passed him by. And Philip is just walking, watching it go into the distance. And then the spirit says, run up to this, to this chariot. In the chariot is an interesting character. He's an Ethiopian, which means he's not a Jew, more than likely, though he had been worshipping in Jerusalem, we're told. If that's true, then he's a proselyte or proselyte. Proselyte is things that hang from the ceiling, I think, right? <laughs> proselyte. That is a Gentile who has become God-fearing. That would be the way the Jews would describe them. God-fearing. Someone who knows the Lord, Yahweh, uh, forsakes all other gods to, to worship the one true God of Israel, becomes a student of what we call the Old Testament, of the Word, worships according to Jewish practice to the limits that a Gentile can worship, would participate accordingly in festivals and the like. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, there are those who would attach themselves to the assembly of Israel, the servants of Abraham or others who would come into the assembly of Israel. They were circumcised, as you may remember. They had to uh, observe the Sabbath and so on. They were not Jews because they did these things. They forever remained Gentile, but they had this special designation. A proselyte was someone who was seen as a step closer to God because of their association with Israel through the faith of Israel. He said to he is said here to have a scroll of Isaiah, maybe others with him as well, but he's reading just Isaiah. That would have been a very expensive and rare thing, particularly outside the nation of Israel. Even Jews didn't have their own scrolls by and large. Only the the local synagogue would have one typically. So he's clearly a man devoted to his faith and sincere. He, he's devoted in a very serious way because he's spending real money on very expensive things in order to worship. He's made the trip all the way up from Ethiopia to, uh, to be in, in Jerusalem. And lastly, he's in the court of Candace, the queen, which would mean he's an important, powerful figure with a lot of influence back in his land. Uh, and he's in a chariot driven by a chauffeur. So here we have a man who in many ways represents the other side of a coin in which the front face are the Samaritans. Because in both cases, like Samaritans here, this proselyte is not a Jew, but he worshipped as a Jew. And like Samaritans, he represents this unique group of people who knew that there was a promised Messiah and to some extent were expecting and looking for him. And therefore, they're only a step away from believing him once someone introduces to that person who the Messiah was. So they were ready for a Messiah. They knew the meaning and the reason for a Messiah, but they just didn't know who he was and that he had already come. That's what made Samaritans and proselytes very similar. Compared to, for example, your, all, your general purpose Gentile, who did not 
even care about a Messiah, much less know what it was to have a Messiah or why they needed one. The whole concept was foreign. And the logic or the, the, the wisdom in how God has moved the gospel from Jew to this in-between group of Samaritans and proselytes and then later to the Gentiles is seen in the fact that it is a message that becomes harder and harder to deliver or has to be delivered in, in, in a different way as you move down this ladder, particularly as you leave those first two groups and go to a Gentile. It becomes an entirely different message. So before the church is ready to preach to Gentiles, we have these other two groups covered in the way the message is spread. God uses Philip here to reach them, reach uh, this man in much the same way that he reaches the Samaritans earlier. The second half of the book of Acts completes this other side of the coin for the sake of this second stage of the gospel movement. The second stage being near Jews, so to speak. Samaritans first, proselytes later. And I don't suggest that this is the only proselyte that ever came to know the Lord, of course. He's representative of the group. So in verse 29, the man is reading Isaiah aloud, we're told. By the way, that's the normal tradition for how the word of God was read in the East. It was always read aloud. And so Philip is told by the Spirit to go up. Verse 29, then the Spirit said, Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please, tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, notice Luke's emphasis here is on the actions of the Spirit and the importance of God's Word. Going back to that major two-part theme of the entire book, it's not about the men, it's about the work of the Spirit and the power of God's Word. And in the story as Luke tells it here, there is a contrast here in several elements between the first story of Simon and now this story is a classic moment of evangelism. Look at the elements You have a man seeking the true God, reading the Word of God. Then the Spirit of God directs Philip to this man to explain the Scripture. And by that explanation of the Scripture, Jesus Christ is revealed to the man's heart. Just classic evangelism. If you want formulas, if we're looking for recipes out of the book of Acts, here is your recipe. A man seeking the Word of God, the Spirit at work in other words, the reading of the Word of God, the proclamation of the Word of God, The Spirit of God then directing us where we are to take that, how the two are to come together. And then through that, the the Word Himself, Jesus, is revealed. First, Philip asks, do you understand what you're reading? His question in the Greek implies that what what he said was not, hey, do you know how to read? Or, you know, do you understand how to read this? It was more specific. He's asking really the same thing the man himself asked or responded with. Do you know what Isaiah is talking about? Do you know who he's talking about? That's really the sense of the question. It was probably Philip's easiest way to just start a conversation with a man who's reading out loud in a chariot. And the man takes that for what it means. He responds in kind. He says, oh, well, you seem to be interested in what I'm reading and you seem to know something about it. Well, here, how am I going to learn it if you don't tell me? Come on up in my chariot. It's very casual, very polite kind of exchange. And he offers, basically, he's offering Philip a ride at the same time. Consider that Philip doesn't know where he's going and he has no plan for the evening He has no plan for the day, from what we can tell. He's been directed down here from the Spirit from the beginning, 
thrown into this situation by the Spirit. Now he's sitting in a chariot with a stranger. He doesn't know where he's going. I love this because it reflects in every case I've ever had to do this, or certainly with the stories I hear from friends in full-time ministry. This is what it's like to be on the mission field all day long. This is mission work right here. No plan when you wake up, not sure where you're going to be at the end of the day or how you're getting home. And that has to be the mentality if we're going to follow the Spirit. It has to be. Otherwise, you're constantly filtering through a lens of what you planned and think is good for your day. You, you don't have any other choice. If you do not let all of that go, and if you aren't willing to be uncomfortable or, or out of control, you'll never get led. It's always something I hear from others who are doing it day in and day out. This, to me, is not a happenstance when you see the way it transpires. It is a great model if you're looking for a recipe on how to do mission work, how to do ministry of any kind. So the man is reading Isaiah. Isaiah 53 to be specific. And in the verses quoted, there is an interesting line here. It's not, of course, chance what he was reading. He's reading about Christ. That's the most important thing. But in one line particularly, in verse 33, the Scripture asks, who will relate his generation, Jesus' generation? The word relate there means explain, reveal. And it means who is going to explain Jesus to Jesus' own generation once he's gone? The word generation literally means family. So that would mean his people, the Jews. The sense of this line in Isaiah 53 is a lament. It's a lament from Isaiah that Jesus' own people will not believe in the gospel, evidenced by the fact that they're the ones who put him to death. Right? And ironically, now, here is a non-Jew, but one who worships in the way of the Jew, reading about this and seeking to know who Christ is, and a Jew is about to explain it to him so that he would believe, which fulfills Isaiah's very words in the sense that Jesus' own generation will not follow, but yet others will. It's in the moment that the gospel is now leaving the Jewish focus and moving outward into a new focus that these words are read. It's just an interesting little tidbit added in. The man says, who is this, Isaiah or someone else? What a logical question. I've always loved that question because... It sounds so much like the kind of question I ask all the time or someone else might ask me. It just reflects the universality of what we feel when we go to Scripture. I get something there, but I don't know what it is. Help me out. And if Philip can be sent from 50 miles north to the middle of nowhere so that this question gets answered, the confirmation for me in that is God is intent on answering those questions one way or another, at the right time, through some means. But he is not intent on letting us stay forever in the dark about these things. Philip seizes the opportunity. He does what you and I would do, I hope. He seizes the opportunity. He preaches Jesus, starting with that verse. But the implication, of course, then is he went elsewhere as well. He preached Jesus to the man. When someone asks you a question about anything that leads you into a discussion of Christ, or could lead you into a discussion of Christ, start where they are. You know, If you can find a way to work what they're talking about to that place, logically, sensibly, you, they may go with you. Philip says, well, let me tell you what Isaiah is talking about. He probably launched into a discussion about the, the suffering servant, the one who would come and die as the sheep to led to the slaughter. But then, as we know, the scripture indicates he went elsewhere. He went as far as he needed to to bring all the pieces together. But always out of the word of God, always out of the word of God. Resist analogies and comparisons and stories and examples in place of scripture itself. Use analogy stories and examples to illustrate after Scripture has been made plain and, and been given. But don't try to substitute one for the other. Don't, don't try to reduce it down to something 
that's not Scripture because that's how it's come to make sense in your mind. Let the power of the Word of God do its business. And then when that turns into a conversation, maybe some of your examples and analogies start to become helpful. So he responds, of course, with faith. Now, that's not stated. You know, it's not stated that the man came to some moment of aha faith. Now, we know he eventually has a a faith response in the form of baptism, but it implies that the man simply agreed. In other words, if I ask you what's two plus two and you say four, we don't start a debate over that. Or where's the nearest Starbucks? Right over there. Okay, thank you. I'm already in a mode to want the answer. I'm asking you because I think you have the answer. So when you give it to me, I'm ready to accept it on, on face as the answer. It's a conversation, not a debate. You'll know when the Spirit's at work because someone will ask you a question that looks like a huge door has just been opened. You'll walk through with the answer and they're going to say, yeah, okay. And you're going to ask yourself, is that it? You sure you don't need some more proof? You sure you don't want to debate a little bit about this? You're just going to say, yes, it's that easy? Well, if the Spirit's working in the heart, yeah, that's that easy. I've run into that. I've seen that happen. And you, you start wondering about it so much because you say it can't be that easy. So you begin to assume maybe they already knew all this. Maybe they already believed. This couldn't have been the moment because it didn't seem like it was very hard. But actually, that's how I think it mostly works. The person who's already in the line of God's work, they're already in that slipstream of, of the Spirit, they're ready for it. They just need to understand it. So Jesus has been explained, and the eunuch responds, it seems, with a natural acceptance. They talk some more. They drive on for a while. Who knows how long this conversation goes on. But in total, it's a stark contrast to what you saw going on earlier with what was happening with Simon particularly. In the case of Simon and the Samaritans, how was their exposure to the gospel originated? Signs and wonders. Here, it's the quiet word of God in the guy's lap. In Samaria, those signs were included to validate the fact that the gospel had come to the Samaritans and to show, I think, to the apostles that it was a reality. But even if the Holy Spirit is inclined to use those things once in a while, it is not the appointed method for faith. It was the preaching of Philip that convinced the Samaritans to believe. It's the preaching of the Word of God here that does the same. The signs were important then, but they're not important now. That difference is important to the story. Luke is explaining you don't have to have signs and wonders doesn't require a magic show for faith to show up. It's just the same elements. The Word of God, the Spirit of God. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ, right? My first memory of coming to faith was in the preaching of Noah. Not because the Word said believe in Christ. The Word said Noah built a big boat. If that's true, well then everything's true. If everything's true, then all these other things are true. And and then as the pastor made application, yeah, I was ready for that. I heard that and understood it. So yeah, it, it comes from anywhere. One last contrast and we'll finish the chapter. In the case of Simon... You saw a man uh, impressed by the messenger, not the message. Here you see a very unimpressive messenger speaking to a very impressive audience, in fact, one who would be less inclined, perhaps, to think that Philip had anything to offer. But the message became all important. And he responds in true faith when Simon manufactures a response to get what he wants. Just a very clear contrast between the two sides of the story. All right, now lastly, verse 36 through 36 through 38. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water, bright guy. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, I love the question. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down in the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. A moment ago I said there's no place in which we see the belief of this man taking hold. I still maintain that because 
Verse 37 is questionably part of Scripture. It, it is present in some manuscripts. Uh, it is not present in some of the older, perhaps more uh, valid or more, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Reliable transcripts, manuscripts, the original Greek manuscripts of the book of Acts. And so in most Bibles that even include this verse, they put it in brackets. Some may not even have it in their Bible, but interestingly, they skip the number. You'll have 836, 838. What you're seeing there is a very smart thing. You're seeing translators reflect the ambiguity of this verse. And I love this because it contends with those who say you can't trust the Bible. Even those verses that are perhaps not original and therefore may not be inspired, we know about those. You know, there's not a conspiracy here to hide these things. So you can choose to accept it. It's not a bad statement. By the way, if, it, if it's legitimate, it's a perfectly fine statement, right? Nothing about that statement that's wrong. It just has the sense that it's not part of the narrative. It comes away from the voice of Luke and sounds like somebody else's voice. It sounds like the kind of thing a well-meaning scribe adds so that you're clear on the fact that this guy believed before he got baptized. But if you take it out, you never would have been worried about that fact, in my opinion. You go right through the story without any concerns about it. You take for granted if you wanted to be baptized this badly, something's changed in the guy, never mind the fact that the Spirit you know, started this whole process. I tend to be on the side that says this verse is probably an addition to the text of Scripture by a scribe who wanted to help us. They come along and they see water. That's unusual. You're not going to find this every day of the week on the road in the middle of Gaza, in the Negev Desert. It's odd finding any water, enough that you can get in and get baptized by immersion, is rare. But that says a lot about the method of baptism that God expects. If he made water available under such unusual circumstances, arguably miraculously, so that baptism could take place, he made sure there was enough so that immersion could take place. And we know it was immersion because of the language in Greek when it says they came up out of the water. In other words, it just testifies to the need for that. And we also know from Paul's teaching why it has to be immersion as well. But the point is it's reinforced here. The eunuch himself recognizing the opportunity. What a huge testimony for him. And then again, an example for us. All believers are expected to respond to newfound faith with baptism. And they're expected to seize the first opportunity. To fail to be baptized is disobedience. To wait is disobedience as well. And it can be corrected by obedience, but waiting is disobedience. Churches do people wrong when they make baptism a, an event that takes place quarterly. If someone confesses faith at the front of a church or in the back of the church or at any other place, the next question ought to be, where is their water? And actually, in the early church, the confession of faith was not the words. It was the act of baptism. What we today consider the confession of faith, the walking down the aisle, that is a manufactured addition to the process of salvation. We have added that or created that in place of what the Bible gave, which was get in the water. So if we really wanted to do it the way the Bible expresses it, especially in this example, we would have water at the front of our churches all the time. And when they walk down, they bring their towel. So they get baptized. And then it says in verse 39 through 40, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. The word snatched here is the same word Paul uses when he describes the rapture. But we know this is not the rapture for Philip. 
mainly because he shows up somewhere else, right? He's not done with, on, on earth. He lands somewhere else on earth. It is a mystery here what really happens. It's not clear. He's physically moved. He is not just transported in his mind. He is not walking to this place. He is transported by God in a miraculous way. What, a, what an amazing thing it must have been to just show up somewhere else. In this case, you show up about 20 miles northeast of where he started. Philip continues to minister along the plains of Palestine, we're told. If you look at what's said here on a map, it means he came from this, where he was on the Negev, slightly northeast or northwest, and then he moved from there by foot up the plains on the far eastern or western border of Israel until he reaches Caesarea where he stays. And he really just stays in Caesarea for the rest of his ministry. He spends the rest of his time there. He stays there for many years. In fact, Paul and Luke will visit him in Caesarea many years from this time. That's presumably where Luke heard this story and had the chance to incorporate it into the book of Acts when he met Philip in Caesarea. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us and encouraging us to be better stewards of the gospel and to listen to the Spirit, to uh, find new ways to serve you with that ministry of, of hearing the Spirit, stepping into someone's life, sharing the gospel. Father, it may come in some remarkable way. We may be called into some completely new walk of life, but more often it's in the walk you've already given us that we're called to do these things. I pray you'd make us bold in that way not fearing and and not hesitant. Help us to see those opportunities like Philip did. Help us to obey like Philip did. Help us to preach the gospel properly out of your word. And I hope, Father, tonight would be useful in in all of those things. Let us uh, spend our week, Father, serving you in in whatever way you call and bring us back here again next week with others who would study with us. And we ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.